Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined on this episode by Jordan Ely of the University of Maryland and one half of the Luminous Daughters of Lorraine <laughs> podcast team. Uh, good morning, Jordan. How are things in Maryland? Are you in Maryland? How are things? Things are good. I am in Maryland. It looks like it's a really beautiful day outside. I wouldn't know because I haven't stepped foot outside yet, but <laughs> <laughs> but it looks good from the window, yeah. <laughs> yes, this is a somewhat unusual morning, a.m. hours uh, recording of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, I'm glad things are looking are looking nice out in Maryland. Um, I am also joined by Leticia Ridley of Santa Clara University and the other half of the Daughters of Lorraine. Leticia, are you on the West Coast? Are you on the East Coast? Where are you? I What's going am on? in what uh, Jordan E. likes to say, the dirty South. I'm currently in Virginia at UVA on a postdoc fellowship to write my book. So it's been it's been wonderful this this year to have the time to do so. Well, fantastic. That sounds great. Uh, Jordan, Leticia, I have been thinking of uh, you both and the Daughters of Lorraine podcast as the revival of the sign in Sidney Brustein's yeah. window made its way to Broadway, was nominated for two Tonys. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to put you on the spot as sort of, you know, resident experts on Lorraine Hansberry, but I was looking into this history and I think this is the first, these are the first Tony nominations for this Play. Yeah. There have been several rounds of Tonys for Raisin in the Sun over the years, including mm-hmm. a couple of significant revivals on Broadway this mm-hmm. um, this century. Um, but I'm curious to know what you think of this revival. Have you had a chance to see it? Are you? Are you? What do you think of its reception? I we haven't. I I don't. We didn't get to see it, um, which is so unfortunate. Um, but. I'm a huge fan of Oscar Isaac and Rachel Brosnahan. So I am, I can only imagine, you know, the electricity that's happening on the stage with the that play. I'm not even sure how long the run is. I mean, we'll be in New York in a couple of weeks. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just excited that there is a resurgence in Lorraine Hansberry's work. I know we'll talk about that more in terms of the um, one of the folks that we're going to focus on. But I'm just excited that this um, amazing playwright is getting more than just attention on one play of hers. Right. I agree. And I think, you know, Signs is also very compelling to put in the context of African-American theater, right? Because it's one of Lorraine's plays where it's not predominantly Black folks, right? So how do we sort of situate that within the canon of African-American theater? Um, how is this getting a Broadway, full Broadway production? Um, because the original production closed early. It was also shadowed by Lorraine's death. Um, how does this reframe the figure and um, really put on the forefront her sort of uh, leftist, communist uh, politics that was really actually central to her making? Absolutely. Yeah, I have I have not had a chance to see the production either, um, but it sounds great. I've got a couple of uh, friends who are in the cast, and and I'm very excited about the success that they have had. And um, yeah, it's a it seems like it's a, a really exciting time for uh, uh, work on Lorraine Hansberry in general. Um, finally, uh, we are also joined on the episode by Miriam Felton Dansky of Bard College. Miriam, where are you in the sort of 
end of semester hubbub and pageantry. I am at the, I'm in the middle of the hubbub, but the pageantry starts next week. Where, where are you all at Bard? Nice to see you all. Um, we're in the middle of all, all three or all four, all five of those things. Um, the, um, the students have done their senior projects in theater and performance. All, all senior projects were due earlier this week, but there's a lot of um, other stuff happening at Bard that's pretty exciting. The Fisher Center Biennial, uh, which is a focus on food justice, is happening this weekend. I'm pretty excited to go see um, some work, especially a piece by my colleague Tanya Lumpuri. Um, that's an outdoor site-specific um, listening piece. Um, she just won the Alfred Award in the Arts, one of, was one of the theater and performance artists um, to get that award. Um, and at the same time, um, I've been going to the final um, thesis projects of the first graduating class in the new MA in Human Rights in the Arts that Bard has. Um, so some of these are installations, some of them are films, some of them are um, site-specific performances. Um, and that's all been really exciting, and there's more to come. So yeah, Um two or three more weeks of, of festivity and um, projects. You sound like you're very energized and, and excited about all of it, and that is great. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so on this episode, uh, uh, we read the book um, One Public, New York's Public Theater in the Era of Oscar Eustace by Kevin Landis. This book is recently out from Bloomsbury um, and examines a singular American theater institution and the leadership uh, so far of, uh, by a singular figure in American theater, Oscar Eustace. We also looked at the financial challenges faced by regional theaters, um, recent developments uh, of, of layoffs um, and um, pulled back plans to renovate a theater building at the Dallas Theater Center are portentous and may reflect challenges that are broader facing um, uh, theater and regional theaters in the United States. And finally, the recent announcement of Guggenheim Awards or Guggenheim Fellowships won by three theater and performance studies scholars, Soika Colbert, Patrick Anderson, and Petra Cuppers, uh, prompt us to consider the place of our field in the world of prestigious awards and fellowships. Um, before moving on to these topics, let me first say that I am recording in my office at Washington University in St. Louis, which is situated on the ancestral land of several indigenous groups, including the Osage Nation, the Miseria Tribe, the Miami People, and the Illini Confederacy. In 1808, the Osage Nation ceded its lands by treaty under threat of destruction by the United States Army. So I am uh, acknowledging this history, and I also thank the Buter Center for American Indian Studies here at WashU for making this information accessible. I also, as always, want to encourage our listeners to learn more about the territory where they are, where they live and work, um, and listeners can also learn more uh, uh, from the land acknowledgement page on the podcast's website, on tappod.com. So, um, we read uh, <coughs> One Public, New York's Public Theater in the Era of Oscar Eustace by Kevin Landis. Um, I want to begin by acknowledging that Kevin um, is an old friend of mine. Uh, we went to graduate school together. The, uh, uh, when, when he describes in his book um, first meeting Oscar Eustace by taking um, Eustace's dramaturgy class at Brown University, um, I was in that class as well, so I've known um, uh, Oscar over that time as well. Um, the book covers, uh, it focuses 
mostly on the um, the, the period of leadership of uh, that that Eustace has had over the public theater um, up through the you know I don't know 2021 or the the sort of um, immediate aftermath of the pandemic um, and you know, covers a, a lot of the sort of major points um, in the in the the operations of the public and in Eustace's leadership over that time. Um, so I'm very curious to know what what you all thought of it. I, I personally really enjoyed the book and and um, I, I, I liked the kind of journalistic style that uh, Landis brought to it. In a way, it's a it's an oral history, but presented, so the, so the research is largely through many, many extensive interviews that, that Kevin um, carried out with people who've worked with Eustace, who've worked at the public, um, who've had firsthand experiences of, the, of, of his leadership of that institution over that time, but definitely presented in Kevin's own voice. So unlike other oral histories where it's, you know, you have large chunks of, of edited interview text. Um, Kevin presents those findings in his voice and in, in, in his own authorial, uh, authorial voice and, and gives a sort of, you know, narrative and interpretation of what has gone on at the, at the public um, since Oscar Eustace took over. Um, I also, you know, speaking personally, I really enjoyed the introductory chapter and the sort of history of the public that it presents. I... I have always, you know, been aware of what the public theater is, but not really, haven't really understood it that well. I've seen a few productions over the years. Um, I was surprised to learn how young the organization is. In other words, I would have expected, if you'd guessed, if you'd asked me to guess before I read the book, I would have said that it had been created in the 1930s or earlier in the 20th century. But it really was created by Joseph Papp in the 1950s. Um, and has come to you know its its modern fruition in the or its modern state in the second half of the twentieth century. Um, so I think that's you know one of the contributions of it is that it can give you a quick sort of introduction and understanding of the of the public. Um, but it focuses on the contemporary era, and there's there are other histories and other scholarship on the public that exists. So Miriam, would you would you be able to give us a, a sense of where you feel this book fits into existing writing or scholarship on the public theater and its history? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the first well-known book about the public is Helen Epstein's biography of Joe Papp. Um, which came out in the early 1990s, I think 1994, um, and is really a biography of Joe Papp. Um, so we can see already that the public is being set up as an institution that is centered around one person, and that was absolutely the way that it was received in the public um, mind and imagination and its legacy. Um, and the following book, which came out in 2010, I believe, is called Free for All, um, The Greatest Theater Story Ever Told, um, which is uh, more of a book of interviews. Um, I would say then that this book, One Public, follows on those two while notably skipping over some significant parts of public theater history, um, and those being the very short um, relatively short and somewhat longer times of Joanne Acolytus and then George C. Wolfe as the um, artistic directors. Um, Landis does acknowledge at the beginning of the um, book, this book that those are stories that need to be told, and um, but that's not the focus of one public, and, and that there's a reason for that, which is that he's really, as you said, panel journalistically 
focusing on the time that he actually was present and observing going on at the public. Um, I do think that these um, omissions are notable and deserve a little bit more attention, even if they're not the focus of the book. Um, I was looking, you know, as someone who also works in a certain way journalistically and relies a lot on interviews for my research, I looked through the list of interview subjects at the end of the book. There are more than 80 listed subjects of interviews. Um, and he does note that there are some people who were interviewed on background um, and that he doesn't disclose their names. So I can't say for sure that George C. Wolfe and uh, Joanne Acolytus were not interviewed, but they certainly are not listed among the interview subjects of the book. Um, and again, they may have been asked and declined, but I just, just to note that the book includes interviews with Samantha Power, um, Chelsea Clinton, Allison Janney, nothing wrong with any of those people, but I just would hazard a guess that um, Joanne Acolytus and George C. Wolfe's voices would be more specific to telling the history of the public. Um, and so, you know, on that note, I think it brings up a question about how to frame the book. Um, he starts out by saying he really doesn't want this to be about one person, yet the book struggles with that throughout the entire, you know, every chapter is not to focus on Oscar Eustace, which is understandable, but it is not a tension that the book really um, kind of delves into. Um, so who to interview? In addition to Acolytus and Wolf, I'd be curious about interviews that are more inclusive of people who work at various levels in the public. He, uh, you know, talked about the scene where at the beginning of every rehearsal period uh, process, there's a gathering where Oscar Eustace jumps up on the counter and talks to everybody and everybody from the tech crew and all the interns and everybody in marketing, everybody, you know, in every part of the um, public is included. But I would like to actually see an interview with an intern who is working for a Metro card. I would like to see an interview with somebody who is on a light crew. I'd really like to see that ethic that he describes Eustace having embodied in the collection of interview subjects of the book. And again, maybe that was and is part of the background, but I think it could be explicitly addressed in a way that it isn't. And I think that that also goes to the ways in which Marxism and socialism are invoked throughout the book. Um, there is a difference between having an artistic director with a, an overall general socialist philosophy and an institution that's predicated on socialism. So if the institution is predicated on socialism and he acknowledges, of course, that there's a, a tension and a kind of incommensurability between being predicated on socialism and existing within a corporate and nonprofit structure, I'd still like to know what exactly that means in practice. He talks about Oscar Eustace's salary, I believe it's quoted at $850,000. And then he sort of briefly says, well, this really is commensurate with Eustace's contribution. In what sense? And in comparison to the salary of who, how much is the lowest paid staff member at the public paid? I think that's relevant information given the way that the book is framed. Um, just a couple of other thoughts, and then I would love to pass it off to other people. Um, you know, just to give a little bit of shape to the book, he talks about Shakespeare in the Park. He talks about um, the, de the development of various different initiatives, such as the mobile unit, um, which draws on, of course, Pap's initial ideas about bringing Shakespeare to different neighborhoods and not expecting people from other boroughs to come into Manhattan, um, and especially not to line up all day on a work day and be able to wait, um, even if the ticket at the end of the day is free. 
Um, he talks a lot about raccoons. I think that the raccoons do bear further discussion. Um, I did, I did, after reading um, numerous anecdotes in this book about the um, importance of raccoons, um, who, if you aren't familiar with this phenomenon, um, the raccoons are um, pervasive in Central Park and are often, um, you know, going around and uh, uh, making their presence known to the actors backstage, the backstage crew. They apparently weren't a fan of the peaches that were part of the set for Much Ado About Nothing because the peaches were made out of styrofoam. Um, I did speak with a friend who's worked in uh, government funding for the arts in New York City for a very long time, and she confirmed that indeed raccoons come up at every board meeting. Um, they are a consistent topic of conversation. So it is, it is not irrelevant to bring up um, raccoons, but I do question um, the amount of time dedicated to raccoons versus some of these other topics that I've raised. Um, and then, you know, I think also when using interviews as your primary source material, it is worth thinking critically about how much quoted interview material you're using and what it is actually illuminating. Because when you really have done so many interviews and you love the anecdotes that are shared, it can be hard to step back and assess what they're contributing to the narrative that you're offering. Um, and I think, you know, for that reason, there's, um, in a certain way, there's more detail in a chapter that I think we're going to talk about more, um, chapter eight, which addresses um, the responses to Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson um, and to Southern Comfort, um, because there's more engagement with the press. But, um, you know, I think that there are small ways that some of these elements of the story, whether central to Landis's narrative or not, could be just dug into a little bit more. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe I'll stop there for now and see what others have to say. Yeah, well, that's a that's a it's a robust response. It raised some of the questions that I, you know, came up for me um, when reading it as well. I spoke to Kevin, and I I, I want to hear um, what what Jordan and Leticia think as well. Um, I'll say briefly that given about the gap, or like the lack of you know historical coverage of the George C. Wolfe era, the Joanne Echolitis era. Um, my understanding from talking to Kevin was that part of what he is doing is trying to you know contribute more to the public's archives, which, as he describes it, are very scant after the Joe Papp era at when he came and found them. Right, so that some of the most the latest dated arc uh, documents in that archive are condolence letters to Gail Papp about, um, about Joe's passing. And of course, his way into the project is uh, his position at the public and his relationship with Oscar, which allowed him to speak to people who were there now. Um, and so my understanding is that he is in the process of, you know, filling in the archive, but um, it, is not a, it is not a history of the Acolytus or the Wolf eras. And he, you know, it's clear that that needs to be written. My sense is that he didn't have the, necessarily the access to Wolf that would have made that possible to make the book about that era or both eras. Um, uh, and you're right, there's some that's on background and, and, you know, he shares what he shares. But I just wanted to mention that um, specific issue. Jordan, Leticia, I'm curious to know what your, what your thoughts were reading this. Uh, first, I just want to start off by saying the things that I loved about the book. I do love that the way that it was written. I think it was a compelling read. Um, an easy read, not in the sense that the topic necessarily was easy, but um, I found myself really deeply 
falling into what I was reading and engaged with the sort of anecdotes and the stories. Um, I especially like to sort of focus on particular productions and bringing in other voices um, of those productions to sort of give some texture to things that maybe some of us have seen or not have seen or just heard about in passing um, that we wouldn't get just by going to see a show. So in that way, I felt like I was able to get an idea of the public theater, this thing, this entity I always heard of. I recently just um, went to my first public show like last summer um, with Jordan. We went to go, we went to go see Fat Ham. Um, and, you know, the public has always sort of been this sort of like tower of a theater institution, um, at least for most of my life. Right. You hear about the public theater, its position within um, New York and not being on Broadway and somehow still having the cultural cachet of Broadway as well. Unlike, at least for me, other theaters in New York. Um, so I was, I was really sort of compelled to learn more about the history and I hadn't necessarily read the two other books on the public theater. Uh, with that being said, I, I share a lot of Miriam's criticisms of the book. Um, I do think that the admission of Joanne Acolytus and George C. Wolfe, while not being able to maybe have access to them and or uh, an archive. I do think the admission is notable because of, um, I think jo Joanne Echolitis identifies as a woman, correct? And George C. Wolfe is a black man. And, 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 and he, does, he does talk about in the book, like, you know, this sort of white centric leadership model of the public is very prevalent. Um, and I think, in part, maybe because of the conditions of the research, it the book is kind of sort of forced into that sort of positioning. Um, but I, I did want a little bit more engagement with it. I know it, at one point he talks about um, Eusis and Wolf maybe having some beef uh, that like strained their relationship um, and also wondering, you know, how that potentially influence, right? Like how much he could have went in on, you know, sharing things about, about the wolf tenure, um, and that particular conflict that they have, um, just sort of larger framing things. I'm always interested in what we reproduce when we lean into sort of this great man narrative of institutions and what is lost, especially for a form that is highly collaborative, right? Theater requires so many other hands to be in the pot to make the thing work, <laughs> to make the thing do what it do. And I was curious about um, what are the stakes of framing, uh, you know, the public theater in this way or continuing to frame the public theater in this way when you title the book One Public as if it is a story of the institution, when it's a story of uh, le the leadership of Eustace in the institution. Um, so those are just sort of like initial thoughts about it. Um, you know, the chapters that we particularly close read, I was interested in um this sort of leaning into sort of the scandals and, you know, COVID and the sort of quote unquote racial reckoning um, that, you know, we all experienced and how that influenced the institution. I was a bit dissatisfied with the sort of like, well, we're, you know, we're kind of still trying to, you know, we, we held a discussion about it and, you know, that's, that's how far we can go. And it's not to say that those things are not great and that they're not useful in sort of how we sort of think about 
Southern Comfort, um, the show about a trans man with ovarian cancer or bloody bloody Andrew Jackson, but to also and the Native American response to um, the sort of costuming choices and what that show was uh, staging. But it's really also to sort of think about you purport yourself as a leftist Marxist institution, right? If the floor, I think he actually quoted someone who is like, if the bar is already on the floor and you're just jumping over a bar that's on the floor, how much work are you actually really doing? And and for me, I was wanting um, more engagement with the sort of tensions of what does it mean to create in the COVID world? What does it mean to to sort of respond to um, a letter from the margins, from the biopoc affinity group of the public? Um, and... What else, even if it's unfinished, what else is in process or in progress with the public um, that is trying to go uh, uh, go beyond just sort of like, okay, we're bringing people and we're having a discussion. So I'll leave it there for now. Great. Thank you, Leticia. Jordan? Yeah, um, I totally am agreeing with my um, colleagues here. All of you, I think, have brought up some questions and points of tension and contention that I also experienced in reading One Public. Um, I do think the title also One Public is that it is talking about one part of the public, right? So um, in a sense, it's trying to have this unified story of the public, but also it is one tenure of one person at One Public. So it's one version of this theater. And I think that it was both clear and unclear that that was the framing of the book for me. Um, as Miriam mentioned earlier, right, that there is, and, and Leticia continued, right, like there is the acknowledgement, but does the acknowledgement also, um, does it excuse or justify, right, the the continued framing of the narrative? Up to you to decide. Um, I, I do want to say that um, again, not having read the other existing literature on the public theater, I was excited to delve into one institution. I think that there should be more scholarship that focuses on these singular institutions in American theater. Um, you know, obviously, the one that I'm the most familiar with is Donatella's America in the Round. That's about Arena Stage, um, where she delves into the history, the tensions, everything about Arena Stage. And it just it just kind of um, re-emphasized to me that we know we have this thing that we always call the professional industry or the theater industry, and we don't have a ton of research that delves into these like very um, influential institutions that are shaping this thing that we call the American theater industry, right? So I just appreciate growing literature that focuses on these institutions, and I want more. I want one on ART. I want one on Berkeley Rep. I want one on La Jolla Playhouse. I mean, like, I want... I want these um, institutions to be um, studied. I actually recently, uh, like a year ago, I um, was on a panel um, with uh, Trelov McCraney and he was discussing like the large history of black theater at Yale Rep, right? So like, I, I just think that any sort of deep dive into institutional dramaturgy or institutional work is like super important um, and really gives context to why we're seeing the industry that we're in now. Um, and I think that, you know, not to repeat anything that's already been said, but just delving into specifically, you know, the, the courting controversy chapter, which focuses on those two productions of Bloody Bloody Andrew, Andrew Jackson and Southern Comfort. Um, I think that in many ways, I felt like the, um, 
the controversy wasn't courted enough. I mean, I, I, I feel like I, I really wanted actually some more. And again, because we've already acknowledged the framing of the book and how we got into even being able to interview, we didn't get as much. Um, um, I would have wanted to hear more from a Native artist who maybe saw the show or um, um, more, even more delving into um, a trans actor or trans artist who um, it was maybe, I don't know, considered for casting. I don't know how, how you know, um, access to that information is um, accessible, but like, I, I think that, you know, when you're presenting something as um, tenuous, as um, um, controversy around identity politics, I think that in the spirit of, um, of robust journalism, it's, to me, I would love to see all sides of that. And I think when we're thinking about this idea of the public or a public or one public, um, the public is is comprised of these many different groups that make this public. Um, and so I think that that's something I really wanted to um, learn more about. Um, I'm not familiar with Bloody Bloody Interjection as a show, um, but just in reading, just when I saw the title, I was like, oh, no, no, no. No, 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 no. This can't be. Um, and then obviously it there was in all the controversy, which is to be expected. Um, and I also agree with Leticia, you know, specifically thinking I, I did like delving into the COVID. I mean, obviously it's so hard to read about COVID, like still. Um, but I like that, you know, we we got into that time period. And I think I was again a little bit um disappointed with the um Oh my God, it was such a shock that BIPOC folks were like on the margins in the state. I just felt like there was a a little bit of a, I wouldn't say excuse because it was covered, but just like, it felt like it was tempered a little bit about like the response from that, the letter from the margin. And especially within the context of something like We See You Right American Theater and all of these other, you know, ways that um, um, marginalized artists have tried to, speak back to dominant, you know, theater industry. Um, it felt like it didn't necessarily, it was just like, yeah, can't believe this happened either. And it's like, no, I can, I can believe it happened. I think even in the most quote unquote, well-intentioned places that happens probably even more because, because of, you know, it's like, no, we're already the good guys. So we don't have to do as much. Um, and so again, I'm, you know, I love the history um, focusing on the public theater. I'm also aware of the ways that this particular institution has been very critical in the same way like an arena stage for mar- my minoritized and marginalized artists to get these productions. But I want, I just want a little bit more of a problematizing of these his, of this history. Um, and even though, you know, you may be friends with someone, like how do you skirt that line? Um, and I think... I think it's hard. I do. I want to acknowledge that it's difficult, but also, you know, brave scholarship, right? How do we do that? Yeah, well, I had, there's there's so much here to talk about. Um, and speaking of the difficulty of, you know, approaching something like this when you have a personal relationship, um, I think I, you know, 
regarding some of the criticisms that you all have raised about the book, one thing that I was surprised by was actually the what I found to be the level of candor from the perspective of Eustace and people working near Eustace and in the leadership of particular projects about the um, the the shortcomings and the mistakes that were made along the way. The the epilogue is an extended late interview with Eustace in which he addresses bloody bloody Andrew Jackson, um, addresses the the letter from the margins. Um, I think he is candid and and fairly self-critical about his own failings in that regard. Um, so I feel as though it it indeed it is the the research and the points of view conveyed are uh, you know closer to uh, Eustace and indeed there is not equal time given to explaining how um, people working elsewhere in the organization felt about that and I think that makes sense in certain ways um, it's, it's part of the trade-off I think you have when you have access to people who are willing to speak openly um, that you end up giving greater uh, accounts of their points of view and and less of of individuals who um, may not have been higher up and and um, and that's I think that's a fair criticism. But I think it's part of what's interesting about it and I think valuable about it, part of what I enjoyed about it is that you're seeing, a, a with a fairly high degree of, I, I think, candor and, and transparency, though, you know, how much transparency is difficult to gauge from the outside, um, how Oscar Eustace himself and people reacted to what was a big cultural reset and a, a super turbulent time and a kind of generational shift. I, I like, like you, um, I reading the account of how Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson came onto the stage and the sort of surprise and and uh, shock that people staging that play, producing that play felt that there were negative reactions from Native artists and audience members. It's kind of like, how could you not have seen that, right? Like, how could you not have seen the way those representations would be experienced? On the other hand, you get interviews with Michael Fried about that, um, or pardon me, Michael Friedman, and you get the sense that People working on that project had a very particular and very negative view of Andrew Jackson and were putting forward what they thought was a clearly sarcastic, ironic depiction of American populism in that moment. So I, I'm not saying that that you know is justified at all. Part of what I'm saying is that the book itself gives you a sense of this real acute cognitive dissonance that is happening at the highest levels of the leadership of this super important institution. And um, you know, unflattering things about Oscar Eustace's uh, tenure are 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 presented, um, and the contradictions of operating this institution on values that are socialist in an environment where it. The institution cannot survive without the philanthropy of very wealthy people, without, um, you know, at least being open to receipts from from successful projects that go on to big commercial runs. Um, I think that Kevin is pretty open and that Oscar Eustace is pretty open about talking about the contradictions that that involves. So, um, yeah, but so those are those those are my reactions. I'll also say that I, I echo the, the the feeling that it was it was really interesting learning about how that institution works, learning about what the budgets 
were, learning about how much, for example, of the revenues and the profits from Hamilton are going back into the public. This is information I didn't expect to be given in so much detail and was super interesting from someone who has only really known the public from its, uh, you know, reputation and from the luminaries that have been involved with it. Um, it was really interesting to see how that institution operates. May I briefly add before we go on to the next topic? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I echo what um, uh, what all of you have said. And I think that just, you know, part of what um, Jordan, as you were saying, brave journalism can do is not feel like it has to solve and provide the answers or sum things up with uh, an excuse or a rationale or a reason why something happened. You can present the problem in a lot of detail. And I think that that is something that the book could give itself permission to do. Um, and, you, you know, I also, to the to what you said about courting controversy, I I wonder whether in fact the phrasing of controversy, and I'm not you know this isn't really a criticism of Landis's framing of it necessarily, but just our whole perception of controversy actually puts the burden in a certain way on the people who are responding, right? Like oh this is a controversy because you thought it was problematic, and that 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 framing it's a controversy is in itself somewhat diminishing to a larger debate. Um, or a larger conversation, a larger set of work that's going on. And so I wonder if actually this might propel us to think differently about what we even mean when we say controversy, right? Because if the racist um, musical comes out and nobody points out that it's racist, then it's not a controversy, but it was still a racist musical. So, you know, I wonder, I just sort of wonder if there's more discussion to be had about that framing, about the idea of um, controversy. And I also think that, you know, sometimes there's um, an effort to think in terms of, oh, it was, um, the problem was how it was received, which also doesn't quite encompass what the actual artistic efforts underway are. And so what are they in some of these cases? What, what, is, the, um, what is the artistic fabric of Southern comfort? Um, and I also, you know, just to that point, I, I know that the trans community um, in theater has been quite open in speaking back about um, that production and, and others that didn't include trans artists in the forefront. Um, I guess the last thing I wanted to say is really positive about the public. And, and I don't think that this book's obligation was to be more or less critical of Oscar Eustis. I think it's more just about the framing and writing um, about the work in general. Um, but in December of 2018, Nope, it was 2017. Um, I attended a um, one of the town hall discussions that the public has, um, and it was not led by Eustace. It was led by Stephanie Ibarra, who um, went on to become the artistic director of Baltimore Center Stage, and now she's at um, Mellon, I believe. Um, and it was about um, sexual misconduct and harassment in the theater industry. And it was one of the best open conversations among theater makers, many of them not famous, many of them people who just work in the theater um, that I've ever seen. It was because of her skill with facilitation in creating a space that people, um, this, you know, one of the theaters in the public was completely full. Um, there was an incredibly thoughtful structure to how to speak about sexual misconduct in theater. Um, and she moderated it with such leadership. Um, I, you know, I think that that is something the public has provided and that, you know, even more of a light can be shined on. Um, so yeah, just to say, I think there's, there's more to say about the public and also about, you know, many other institutions as well. All right. Um, well, so I think that that covers a lot of our 
various reactions to the book. Um, and I want to move on now to our second topic, which is, um, I don't know, continued challenges uh, that are faced by regional theaters and, and other institutions. Um, Jordan brought to our attention the reporting that American Theater has done recently uh, on the Dallas Theater Center, um, which, you know, has, is going through a, a difficult time now, which in uh, April suddenly announced uh, layoffs that affected around half of the um, staff of that institution. Um, and so I think, like, I, I don't know, the, the question that this raised for me is, of course, I think what not what is going on at Dallas Theater Center itself, but in, to what degree and in what ways is this or is this crisis a reflection of challenges that a lot of institutions are going to face? What we, you know, over the course of the pandemic, um, we on the podcast have talked a lot about what institutions are doing to adapt, what artists are doing to adapt. Um, you know, we are all academics that have, you know, perhaps greater than average understanding of how um, these arts organizations are working. Speaking for me personally, it's, you know, from an outside vantage, I don't know what those discussions are like, what those meetings are like, what it's like to be a working artist. Um, uh, but um, there's some interesting information about DTC and then also about audiences sort of slow return to the pre-pandemic levels of engagement with these institutions. So, um, Jordan, I thought I'd ask you, you know, um, uh, what about this caught your attention? What is your sense of the way that the what we understand about what's going on at Dallas Theater Center is a um, sample of broader phenomena? Yeah. Um, so I this particular article was brought to my attention because I follow... Um, or I subscribe to uh, Lauren Halverson's Nothing for the Group newsletter. Um, and and she included that as a part of um, her coverage um, in that. And for me, this was just kind of like, you know, uh, this is mentioned in the article, but I was already aware of the um, financial troubles that Oregon shakes, for example, Um um, I, my artistic home of Atlanta, um, there's a huge campaign going on in Atlanta because one of um, our major sort of musical theater producing houses, the Lyric Theater, um, recently shuttered. And um, Atlanta artists have now, and, and theaters have like sort of come together to be like, come back to theater. We cannot survive without you. And so for me, this is just continuing to like, one, the challenges of, you know, continuing to have this multi-million dollar industry in the, you know, wake of the COVID-19 pandemic that presented such horrific challenges, right, to the theater industry. I mean, it, it was abysmal. And, um, you know, this it, it, and this idea like, we're back, we're back, theater's back, um, is also shadowed by all of the the money and challenges um, and financial troubles that have still continued even as we're quote unquote back in the American theater. Um, and also, you know, less explicitly, um, I was thinking about programming and I'm thinking about the types of, of works that we're seeing. I mean, Obviously, you know, when we think about things like, you know, the Great Depression or the recession and we think about like what what plays, what movies, what TV shows, whatever were popular during this time in the wake of these sort of tragic events. And even like 
just the the fact that this happened while the theater's producing Into the Woods, there's something very, like, interesting about that, right? Um, Into the Woods is currently having a big resurgence, right? Like, just generally speaking. And I think that, you know, when you look at this play that's about how people can come together in the wake of tragedy and, you know, we think that we know this story, but it's totally subverted, um, I think just has a lot of um, metaphorical resonate, resonance with what's happening in the American theater, right? Which is these, um, you know, we think we're going to be back. We think we're going to know this story, right? But... It is, you know, um, halted by this tragedy and also silhouetted by the fact that, again, we, we've like when we think about just the pandemic in general, I mean, we lost millions of people just generally. And when we're coming back into this space that's supposed to be this kind of gathering place for so many people, a refuge for so many people, it's also a reminder of what we've lost um, in this, in this time. And I don't know, I, it, it worries me about the, um, actual feasibility of continuing on in this field. Um, I mean, as someone who's kind of tangentially attached to it, more so as a contract freelance artist, um, than a, than a full-time worker, I worry about people whose livelihood is dependent upon this in the same way that my actor friends in 2020 and 2021 have barely recovered from the loss of work that happened in those two years in particular, in particular. Um, and so, um, this to me is just like you said in your introduction panel, that this is just indicative of a larger problem. I mean, a, a theater like Oregon Shakes having to be like, we need your help, please, like, we need money, is terrifying. It is terrifying. Um, and so, you know, it, and it also speaks to what we in the theater industry have always known is the precarity of this industry. It just, it's like more apparent to outsiders now, right? When you think of these um, folks who have won Pulitzers and Tonys and things like that, who don't have healthcare, who are, you know, um, still working two to three jobs just to continue on in their practice. It just speaks again to this just larger um, financial, emotional, spiritual precarity that has always existed in this industry. And it's just, it, it does like give me a little bit anxiety for the future. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. I think there were, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot to say. I, I did some reading in this about the reporting on Dallas Theater Center itself and then some of the reporting that um, American theater has done about the broader phenomenon of audience engagement and revenue. And it seems as though audiences are, the trend is positive. In other words, subscriptions, subscriptions are down, at audience engagement and attendance are slowly coming back, but there's a gap that is not closed yet and may not close. There are you get the sense that there's a kind of this is something this is a one of the two connections I saw with the uh, the book about the public. One, Oscar Eustace, I think he said it in in I don't know if it was the epilogue or or chapter eight or chapter ten, but that there's a sense that the philanthropic sources are kind of exhausted. Not that there's not money. There is money, but that the giving that might have been spurred by a sense of this is an emergency is not sustained at that level. Um, and then a, a different dynamic, which I think is true um, 
uh, I actually noticed this in the in the way that the that Kevin Landis talked about the uh, Joseph Papp era, but that extending oneself in programming, doing more and more theater, trying to reach communities, trying to do things in parks, um, that that's kind of a a it's it's not that it's not mission driven, but that artistic directors see that as a way of getting more money coming in, right? If you if you have more visible programming, if you're doing more and more work, that's seen as a way of getting audiences and getting um, donations. And so there's a sense that in the pandemic, um, there was a lot of activity, sort of extra activity created to sort of create a, you know, perhaps a visibility that would ultimately um, help the, the organization's bottom lines. But the people were getting worked at rates, you know, working conditions that were absolutely not sustainable, weren't sustainable before the pandemic, but that there's a tension where I think the, or these organizations feel if they pull back their activity, their programming, their season, they're going to see less and less money. And that the balance, the, the way of balancing people's uh, or organizations' ability to pay the bills um, continues to rest on overexerting, overworking your workforce. Um, and that seemed to me to be a, a kind of a really difficult dynamic, right? Um, and something that maybe contemporary theaters are seeing as well. But Leticia, Miriam, I'm, I'm curious to know what your perspective is on this story uh, about Dallas or, or the broader phenomenon. Yeah, I'll be short. I, I re- reiterate what both of you are saying, but I think one of the things that I'm really fearful of is like regional theaters specifically seem to me actually very vital um, and important to the American theater industry thriving. Um, And I know there is questions about access, where these regional theaters are, how much a ticket is. But for me, regional theaters decenter often theater from New York, (laughs) Um, from this idea of Broadway, some of the, you know, shows that we celebrate and are so excited for are happening at regional theaters. And I worry about what that does if regional theaters cannot put on um, a season and perhaps the solution is that they just do less theater. Um, but I, I, the financial strain to me is worrisome in the sense that, right, Dallas uh, Theater Center had we're paying actors a salary for two years, right? Like that's something you want to root for. That's something that you're like, yes, you know, someone is getting a paycheck, you know, uh, continuously. That's not, that's not relying on them like being in the show. Um, and that, that in part could contribute to, to the sort of like downfall of having to sort of lay off, um, you know, half of their, their staff. And I think when I, I look to the future, I don't know the solution, right? Like, I think it goes to, you know, donors and monies, uh, the time, the economic crisis we're in, um, inflation, uh, you know, I find myself someone who goes to a lot of theater or, you know, prior to the pandemic I did. And, Ticket prices are not affordable. Um, even the sort of the res- the restrictions on, um, you know, if you're under thirty, right? Like people over thirty may still not be making enough money to go to go to um, theater. And I know that you know the trend um, is slowly rising, but I, I wonder for how long that will be. When you're like, do I need to buy these eggs to eat, or do I spend this extra money on a ticket to go see a show? Um, and then lastly, I'll just say, I think this just 
begs the question for bigger sort of supports and perhaps one of the reasons that there would be a push for a national theater in the United States is that I don't know the grants, um, either national or state support that would sustain or see the usefulness of um, theater alongside the many other forms. Um, I think this is a microcosm of the inclusion of streaming sites, of the pandemic, um, where shows that would open up in movie theaters, then we're just going straight to your streaming site um, and sort of thinking about what does that mean uh, and if it's valued by these other institutions. Yeah, there's. A, I, I want to hear from Miriam, but I'll just tag that real quick, really quickly by saying it's interesting to consider this in the background of the WGA strike, which is it first had been billed, or I was aware of it as a, you know, uh, on Twitter, the concerns about AI and the restrictions on AI being used in the creative process were at the foreground. But it's uh, really about streaming and the way that, like a lot of other formerly well-paid and stable professions, including the professoriate, that increasingly everyone is taking less and less pay. Everyone is being incrementally forced to you know, either try to abandon their careers or uh, make do on less and less of a commitment on the part of the, you know, of their employers. So it feels like it's a similar type of dynamic. One, unfortunately, that's very, very familiar to, to theater artists, um, but that extends beyond theater and into the broader, um, you know, cultural industry, I suppose. Um, yeah, just to pick up on a couple of those things that echo, um, really, I think a couple of really good points that Leticia made, um, one of which is just to highlight that these layoffs are coming after two years of full-time employment for an acting ensemble, which is very rare in this country. Um, and there are a couple of different institutions that started something like this during the pandemic. So Rep um, notably did that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's really impressive that Dallas Theater Center was doing this, despite that um, now it's, of course, devastating that they're um, seeing these layoffs. And it speaks to funding from the government for regional theaters and, um, you know, the devastation of the NEA, which is not new news and had, you know, was happened long before the pandemic um, and which arose right around the time of the regional theater movement, um, you know, in the mid 60s. So there's there's a long historical trajectory leading to this. And one of the things that I looked up as I was reading about the um, these particular layoffs was one of the one of the reporting sources statistically um, is an organization called SMU Data Arts. And I was reading through their white papers, one of which is called Theaters at the Crossroads, Overcoming Downtrends and Protecting Your Organization Through Future Downturns. You might think this is a current white paper, but actually it came out in 2019 and it's responding to the ways that theaters weathered um, the recession of 2008 to 2010. Um, and so, you know, these, while the, the pandemic was extremely acute, the underlying um, lack of financial support from the government for theater and cultural institutions more broadly is nothing new. And that report really expresses clearly that the subscription model was on the downtrend way before the pandemic. And so it should not be a surprise that um, that's not a viable model at this particular moment. Um, and then let, just last thing, I wanted to put in a little plug for um, Miguel Gutierrez's podcast, Are You For Sale?, which does a really great job of historicizing government funding for the arts, performing arts, especially in the US. 
All right. Thank you for that. Yeah, there's more to discuss here, though. I want to move on to our third topic. One thing that well, now I'm going to mention this, but in reading about the Dallas Theater Center, one thing that Kevin Moriarty, formerly artistic director, now executive director um, of that organization, said about the audiences was that he perceives it not necessarily just as a matter of the cost or the engagement that theater has with audiences, but that there's something broader culturally where he feels as though it's a suspicion of each other, a, a sort of sense that people are by default more inclined to stay home and less, uh, a bit more wary about gathering in public. And I'm curious, I thought that was an interesting observation or, or, or perception, whether or not there is a, a, perhaps something accelerated by the pandemic, uh, intensified by the pandemic, but just a sense that people are less inclined to leave their homes for any reason, but that it's partly the reason, not that people are afraid of contracting the virus, which is reasonable, but that it's a sense of wariness about just being out. Um, so that's not a positive note to end on, but it does, it does put in mind the different sociological facts or factors that may be at work um, uh, in, in, in the struggles that the theaters are finding reaching audiences. Um, perhaps on a more positive note, <laughs> uh, we wanted to talk in our third topic about um, the, the recent uh, announcements of Guggenheim Fellowship awardees, which include um, several important scholars from our field. Um, I mentioned Patrick Anderson, um, Soika Colbert, and uh, Petra Cuppers all were awarded uh, Guggenheims this past year. Um, I thought this was interesting, and, and I want to say a little bit framing this topic that I don't want to suggest that there's anything anomalous or curious about these folks winning Guggenheims. Um, they're all extraordinary, uh, innovative, very original, um, just remarkable scholars. So I want to be careful that in posing questions about how we interpret this that I don't <laughs> seem to suggest that it needs to be explained, right? The Guggenheim Awards go to you know, promising mid-career uh, artists, academics, scientists, et cetera, et cetera. So there's nothing curious about this. But I couldn't remember another time when three scholars who I knew of and who have really great reputations in our field uh, took Guggenheims in the same year. You go back to 2021, Rebecca Schneider won uh, a Guggenheim. Heather Nathans has a Guggenheim from 20, uh, 2011. Bonnie Marenka um, won a Guggenheim in 1985. And there's a long list of artists um, who, who have also won them. Um, but I'm curious, does this suggest that theater and performance studies is now, you know, somewhat more legible in the conversations and the in the committees that are evaluating Guggenheims than it had been previously? Do we understand this just as a sort of a bolus, just a, a, a year when there happened to be these three very, very strong applications? Um, what do you all make of this? Is this a sign of um, any sort of trend or is it um, uh, just that these three very deserving people won Guggenheims in the same year? I would like to start by quoting uh, the movie Jerry Maguire. Show me the money. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is one fantastic. Um, I think about these, uh, the Guggenheim fellowships that are awarded to these three fantastic folks and placing it in context with the announcement that uh, the Ford Foundation Fellowship will no longer um, be you know, giving out its award. And as someone who received a pre-doctoral uh, Ford Foundation Fellowship, it was actually quite vital to the work that I'm doing. And even though I was like one of like one, maybe one of two theater and performance studies scholars that was awarded the award, it was 
quite honestly, one of the few places that I could apply to be even supported in the research that I'm doing. So it really um, excites me that the Guggenheim Fellowship is um, is recognizing this work, thinking about performance uh, studies as something that is viable um, to the breadth of knowledge of understanding our existence. <laughs> um, but I also want to say that I think that perhaps the question is how theater and performance scholars are now being recognized or being awarded for um, the work that we're doing in these fields, because at least I have noticed a lot of folks who may have not been um, degreed in our fields and or claims our field actually often uses the lexicon of theater and performance studies. And perhaps this is because our methodology has a fluidity that allows it to be sort of picked up and taken to sort of other disciplines. But um, it really, I, I really think that this hopefully is a trend in the direction because I don't even know and perhaps um, you all know, my colleagues know, other places that we can be supported in our research and that there's not only one, but there's three is something that I hope, I'm hopeful will continue the trend, especially as we sort of just talked about like the Dallas Theater Center and the phenomena of regional theaters, right? Um, and I and I really want to sort of shout out um, Soika Dix Colbert as, um, you know, someone who's working in theater, right? Like <laughs> whose great book around, uh, around uh, Lorraine Hansberry, who won a she won 3,000 awards, but um, that also she's working firmly in theater and that that is being awarded really excites me as well. Yeah, I think that um, I agree with Leticia about, you know, the presence of these three scholars um, in this very prestigious awarding granting organization is a is a phenom, right? Um, I'm sure all of you all have experience when I say, yeah, I'm working on my PhD in theater. They're like, do you act? <laughs> I'm like, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That, like, that has not gone away. I'm like, uh, <laughs> no. Um, and so so it's really great to see the recognition that there is schol- like active scholarship and theory and um, uh, deep research that is being produced around theater and performance studies and that it's worthy of being awarded. Um, I really appreciate you bringing up the context, Leticia, about the Ford Foundation and how there are so few places because even the Guggenheim is a mid-career, um, is a is a uh, an, uh, an award for mid-career um, artists and scholars, right? And so the and these folks, it's interesting mid-career. I don't even know what that means because I'm like these folks to me are like the pinnacle. Like they are, like they are the people that I've looked up to, you know, as a scholar. And um, anyways, I just don't those words like emerging versus mid-career. I never know what they really mean, um, but they but they also are exceptional, right? Like, so you could Dix Colbert, Patrick Anderson, and Patrick Cuppers are exceptional scholars who have amassed an incredible amount of research, scholarship, and achievement already, like in our field. And so, to me, it's like, yeah, they're also recognizing like people who've done amazing work, <laughs> like like a really, really amazing body of scholarship already. And so, um, and so that is exciting to me. Um, but it does make me wonder about the future Leticias, right? Who, you know, are going to need the Ford to go to, you know, to be able to pursue their scholarship. And if those 
organizations don't exist anymore. You can only get it when you've reached a certain level, like mid-career or, you know, beyond. Then what does that leave? Where does that leave us in terms of future um, scholars who want to be able to, um, you know, continue or to even enter this field as scholars and researchers? So it gives me hope, right, that there is a a place for us in these organizations. There is a place for us. I'm sorry. It just... What's that story? I was like, okay, Jordan, musical theater on the brain always. <laughs> but um, but also that it um, that the presence of these scholars opens up the possibility for other organizations to see the importance of the production of knowledge that comes from theater and performance from the perspective of theorists and scholars alongside our our colleagues who are practitioners and artists. So it does it does excite me greatly and I hope that this will um you know lead other places to be as invested in our work. Miriam, what did you think? Was this uh what what's notable about this round of awards? I mean, I'll I'll just briefly echo what my colleagues have said. I think that um, it's really fantastic. I think that these are three incredibly deserving and exciting scholars. And I think specifically to the TC of what you said about Soika Diggs Colbert working on theater, um, you know, Lorraine Hansberry's work notably, um, that theater scholars should not need to be in conversation adjacent to another field or need to make our case for relevance to another field in order to be recognized um, and to have our work be understood as um, significant scholarship. And so I I think that is really, um, really fantastic and notable. I guess the only other thing I'd say is um, there's just no way for us to know how remarkable this year of awardees is in context because we have no way of knowing who's applied in other years and how many scholars from our field have applied in the past. Uh, right. So that just is a little caveat in terms of our understanding. But yeah, I think it's an exciting year and I hope that it will continue. Yeah, I think these are uh, very good points. The the contrast or the, <clears throat> the 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 situation with the Ford Foundation is really is really apt because that is a that is many program that is dedicated to bringing up young talent, right? And 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 that is not what MacArthur's are about or Guggenheim's. You know, NEH awards, uh, ACLS. The ACLS has a um, first book, or at least had until recent years, a sort of first book award that you could ap- apply for. And scholars in my department, Joanna D. Das, who, who works on dance, has gotten one of those and is working on a book on Branson. So, you know, the Guggenheim is very much for people who have already made a mark and have more work to do. <clears throat> um, none of these are. I don't think have the breadth or the sort of ability to um, bring up, uh, you know, sort of give a an award that will be sustaining and and um, help someone anchor their career when they're emer- when they're emerging. Part of what I think was interesting about this is that I, at least in my you know er, in my earlier days when I was younger, um, I would look at the NEHs and think, well, we don't quite fit. Like, there's not like it's hard to select the NEH category on theater history. Is it dramatic literature? And so you're working on, you know, are you an English scholar or a French scholar, et cetera? Are you an artist, et cetera? And if you look at the, the Guggenheim website, um, has some could could use a, a sort of overhaul. It's difficult to sort of search through, but you notice that in the drop down categories and the categories that are attached to individual individual fellowship awardees, there's variation. There's years where it's you know drama and performance or theater arts and performance studies. Those categories shift and mutate. So I think part of the part of the 
picture here is that perhaps theater and performance studies is a legible field in its own. Part of it, as um, you know, uh, uh, I think Leticia, you mentioned. Part of it is the question of whether or not performance as a rubric, a concept, an interdisciplinary intellectual formation is allowing work that would otherwise be between margins to be or between categories to be recognized um, as as a sort of established category of research. Um, But it's all it's all, you know, very good. So I think it's it's an encouraging thing. And, And if there's a upbeat takeaway from all of it, I would say we should be applying for these things. I think I, I have personally been discouraged from applying for NEHs and some of these fellowships because I imagine that I'm in a field that's illegible or too marginal, but this demonstrates that that's not true, you know, um, and, and I think we should all be applying as much as possible in all of our abundant free time. <laughs> Um, so we need to get to the, the end of the episode. It's been a really, um, really interesting conversation. I'm, 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 I'm glad we recorded um, this one. And we need to do our drafts. Our drafts, um, listeners know, are sort of uh, thoughts that are, that are percolating, incubating in our minds related to the work we're doing, um, maybe good things we've read or seen recently. Um, I don't know. Miriam, do you want to kick us off with a draft? Sure. Um, I, you know, inspired by reading uh, Kevin Landis's book and by the fact that uh, Joanne Acolytus had the shortest term as artistic director of the public and is, um, in fact, one of my predecessors as director of the theater program at Bard. Um, I, I spent part of my week uh, looking to see, uh, you know, amass every single thing that's ever been published about or by her. Um, and so I just, for my draft, will read um, a very brief excerpt of something that she published many years ago about um, her experience as part of um, Fabric Minds, the um, theater collective that, of which she um, has been one of the five artistic directors for a very long time, um, about meeting Beckett in Berlin um, after he had denied uh, their company the rights to do one of his plays, Castago, in Zurich. Um, and she uh, she calls up Beckett um, and he meets them at the uh, at the um, Berlin Museum. Um, and uh, here here's what she says. Um, As I hustled Beckett back along the same path, nervously chatting away, I noticed he was having a hard time keeping up with me. He was limping slightly. Embarrassed, I slowed down and seized the opportunity to mention the Switzerland situation. He said, don't worry. We finally arrived in the lobby and there were awkward introductions. Then we took Beckett to the performance spaces. He seemed impressed with the lost one's environment, but dismayed by the Cascado set. This was the set for the piece they proposed to do that he had denied. It was basically a lot of junk around a table. He said to me, well, you certainly have adapted it, and then no more. I felt it was politeness that silenced him. He asked to hear some of the music that Philip Glass had composed for cello for the piece. Arthur Russell, the cellist, sat down on the lonely, junky set and with real passion played beautifully for a few minutes. Beckett made no comment, nothing. We all went downstairs for coffee. Beckett smoked a black cigarette and graciously answered our questions. I'll skip to the end here because it's a little bit long. Um, Beckett's words came from a place deep inside. They possessed a kind of inevitability that is not part of ordinary social discourse. Before we parted, Beckett wrote on a napkin for me, okay, from Mabu Mines to do Cascando in Switzerland. Sam Beckett. That's my draft. That's phenomenal. (laughs) That's phenomenal. Um, uh, Leticia, what is your draft? So for my draft, I want to uplift um, a new book, fairly new book, come, came out a few months ago. I think a few months ago. What is time? Uh, Julius Fleming's book, Black Patience, Performance, Civil Rights in the Un- 
Finished Project of Emancipation out of NYU Press, um, where he argues that civil the civil rights movement utilized theater to enact the radical refusal to wait. And um, I'm in the process of reading this book, and uh, the introduction is just quite fascinating because it situates a lot of the known civil rights uh, leaders, specifically MLK, as a big proponent of theater and a goer of theater and seeing, seeing theater as a space of sort of organizing um, and inspiration for the movement. Um, and then in the and I just want to highlight a moment in the introduction where he is highlighting this uh, production of Waiting for Godot at the Free Southern Theater, where Fannie Lou Hamer attended. And in the middle of watching this production, um, it was intermission, she sort of stands up and sort of gives this sermon to the other Black folks in the audience saying like, see, we cannot wait for freedom because if you wait, you're going to be like these two men um, on stage, right? So um, it's a great book, um, really well-written, really a fan of Julius Fleming's book. Um, please, please, please check it out. Um, I think it will be a staple of theater and performance um, in Black studies. Yes, I, that that book has been uh, on my mind. I know it's on, on a lot of people's lists. Um, I'm glad you're reading it. Glad to hear it's so good as well. Uh, Jordan. Yes, yeah, so today's um, draft for me is um, it's shameless self-promotion, but, you know, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, I am on the authorial team of a new musical called Jeanette um, that is about Jeanette Rankin, um, who is the first woman elected to U.S. Congress. I'm a co-book writer with Lauren Gunderson, and the music and lyrics is composed by Ari Afsar. And we are having a concert reading of this at 54 Below on May 17th um, at 9.30 p.m. And so um, I'm really, we've been, we had a reading of the of the musical recently, and we've done, we've done a lot of overhauling of it. I, w- I originally joined this project as a dramaturg a few years ago and then eventually um lauren and ari asked me to join as an author and so i'm just very honored and and excited um about my headphone um i'm very honored and excited to join this amazing team of women i mean we have an entire team of women um and femme folks who are a part of this team and and so it's a very exciting musical, but also just another step in um, musical theater creation, which is often dominated by uh, cis white men. So it's very exciting that our team is is totally like bucking inside in many ways. So um, so that's what's been on my mind lately um, after finishing my dissertation. So <laughs> that's where I am. <laughs> that, that is, well, whoa, 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 We're finishing your dissertation. That's a huge one as well. Um, that's fantastic, Jordan. I'm, I'm so excited to hear about that project. Congratulations and, and uh, break a leg, et, et cetera, on the reading. Um, that is great. I am going to, I'm going to withhold my draft because it is 11 o'clock and I have to run to a faculty meeting that is starting right now. Maybe I'll do a double draft in a future episode. Um, but uh, Leticia, Jordan, Miriam, thank you so much. Um, listeners, thank you for downloading and streaming. Um, and I believe we'll have another episode coming out in about a month. On Tap is produced and engineered by Charles Ketchaba. It's supported by the School of the Arts, Media, Performance and Design at York University in Canada and its Department of Theater with undergraduate and graduate programs in theater performance, production and design, and performance studies. 
You can find more episodes of the podcast and other information on this and other shows at ontappod.com. That's O-N-T-A-P-P-O-D.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's great if you subscribe, and we always appreciate listener comments and reviews. You can email us at hosts at ontappod.com or find us on Facebook by searching ONTAP and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. 